Hi and welcome to our Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa community. I'm Nicolette and we're glad to have you joining us for today's gathering. Today we are moving from John 18 to 19. Pastor Brian, our co-senior pastor, will share on Jesus standing before Pilate and his sentencing to be crucified. It's an intense and powerful story where Jesus tells Pilate why he's here, to testify to the truth. Pastor Brian will break down what that truth is. What truth did Jesus come to earth to live like a human, a king dying for his subjects, to show us? Jesus came to show us the truth about humanity and what we were created for. And he came to show us truth about God and God's character. Ultimately, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and full of compassion. Like Isaiah 53 says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Jesus showed us that God is love, and the depth of his love is seen in Jesus in his sufferings for us. So I want to do uh, two things this morning. I want to kind of walk through some of the, just, I don't know, some of the key points really quickly, uh, five of them. And just, and just touch on them. And then I'm, I wanna land at a specific place and we'll, we'll spend hopefully the majority of our time kind of looking at uh, the, the answer to the question, what is truth? And um, looking at Jesus actually being, he is the truth. So, so we come now, as, as we've seen, we come now to the, um, Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. In our uh, last time together, we looked at uh, the trial of Jesus in the, uh, with the, the high priest. We talked about how there were two high priests. There was Annas and Caiaphas. And, and John tells us about what happened between Jesus and Annas. He doesn't say anything about uh, what transpired with Caiaphas. John skips over that. And now he moves to Jesus before Pilate. And um, John has his gospel, like it is in so many different areas, is unique. Uh, none of the other gospel writers record the things that John uh, is going to hear record about this, uh, this trial of Jesus before Pilate. And it's interesting, one uh, writer suggested that perhaps John was even there uh, inside when the trial was taking place because the Jews were invited into this. They, they sent Jesus to Pilate, but they didn't go in. This will be our first point. They didn't go into the palace of the uh, governor because they did not want to be defiled. They wanted to make sure they were clean in order uh, to participate in the Passover feast. So th that was their reason for not going in. Um, like I said, that one writer suggested, well, John wouldn't have had those scruples, so John himself, maybe John was actually in the proceedings as Jesus was uh, standing before Pilate, because like I said, he gives details and information that no one else gives. But. Let's just think about that for a moment. So verses 28 and 29, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, 
They did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Just a quick point. This, it just shows you how detached from reality these guys were and how compartmentalized their, every, everything you know, in their mental process was. They, at one, one person said this, it is a curious commentary on human nature that they were scrupulous about contracting a defilement that would keep them from keeping the feast, but they were not at all concerned about taking part in an act of judicial murder. This is the, the craziness of people in sin. They can just compartmentalize all of this. So they're so concerned that they would be defiled by going into the house of a Gentile. That's what the issue was here. Pilate was a Gentile. And so they didn't want any of that contamination. But the fact that they're about to kill the Son of God, that doesn't phase them. That, that has, so it just, it just kind of reminds us of how... Um, twisted we are as human beings, and especially those who are entrenched in sin and against the Lord. So then we see that um, as they come to Pilate, and th this is a point that it kind of struck me in reading over the text. I, I don't know that I even realized this until <laughs> literally yesterday, but look in verses 31 and 32, because it's, it's really interesting what it says. It's, so, you know, they, they bring Jesus, they, they came, and they, um, Pilate says, you know, what charges are you bringing against this man? They say, uh, you know, if he were not a criminal, uh, we would not have handed him over to you. Now, just, just a quick side note, Pilate, uh, the, the Jewish leaders and Pilate, they were... They hated each other. They were absolutely um, hostile toward one another. Pilate, you know, mo most of the uh, provincial Roman leaders, the governors, you know, the idea was that you go into a, a, a community, wh wherever it was, and you try to work with the people and you try to have a peaceful thing. Uh, Pilate just did not do that at all. He went out of his way to provoke the Jewish leaders. And uh, some suggest that he had even been reprimanded by Rome for this. So they're, they're coming to this man, Pilate, who they absolutely hate, but they need him for this reason. So they said, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place, so this is the key. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Now here's an, another thing I want us to see just about the, the, the corruption of these leaders. The Jews, it's debatable among scholars as to whether the Jews could um, exercise the uh, exercise the death penalty, capital punishment. Um, some people say they couldn't, some people say they could. Uh, the text implies that they, they couldn't, but it seems like it was to a certain degree. 
it seems like they could exercise it in regard to stoning a person. And, and we see that in scripture. We see that, uh, that Stephen was stoned by the permission of this same group of people. But here's what they could not do. They could not crucify someone. And of course, crucifixion was, it was Rome's way of dealing with someone. But they are coming and they don't even want to stone Jesus, although they've attempted to do that on a couple of occasions already. They want him crucified. And if you think about that, just in the sense that, um, you know, the Jews collectively, generally, of course, they hated the Romans. The Romans were the oppressors. And no Jewish person would ever want to see a, another Jewish person be treated like that by the Romans. But these guys, they want this. They want Rome to execute Jesus in the sense that they want him crucified. And we know that's what they are uh, asking for because John tells us that this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he would die. Jesus had said in, in kind of veiled terms that he would die by crucifixion. Back in the 12th chapter, he said, I, if I am lifted up, lifted up is a reference to crucifixion. I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And all the way back in the third chapter, verse 14, um, Jesus had said this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man will be lifted up. So Jesus is prophesying that he's going to be crucified. The Jews have no power to crucify him, but they want him crucified. So here's the question. Why did the high priest want him crucified? Why not just permission to take him out and stone him? And this is the reason. The law had said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And the high priest wanted to show publicly that Jesus was cursed by God. He was not the Messiah of God. He was not the Savior that uh, he was claiming to be. No, he was under God's curse. That was their motive for seeking crucifixion. It's unbelievable, really, when you think of the, just the whole psychology and everything that's going on at this moment. Now, in verse 36, just look there with me real quickly. Um, so, you know, Pilate asked Jesus in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is this your idea or did others talk to you about me? Pilate says, am I a Jew? You know, Pilate's, he, he's being sarcastic here. Uh, he says, your own people and the chief priest handed you, handed you over to me. Uh, what have you done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So if, as we read the story, Jesus never directly answers the question, um, are you the king of the Jews? And then he goes on and he says, he says to Pilate, he says, well, that's what you've said. Um, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus says he's a king at, right out, then they're, um, 
then, then he's uh, rising up in an insurrection against Caesar. So Jesus never plays into that. But he doesn't deny that he has a kingdom. But he says that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But now my kingdom is, is not from here. So he does have a kingdom. He is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. Now, the kingdom of God has come through the coming of Jesus, but it didn't come in its fullest sense. We are part of the kingdom. We are, we are subjects of the king. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We and every other Christian on earth. But of course, the kingdom in its totality, we all know, obviously, it hasn't come yet. But it will come. It will come. So the kingdom... Uh, sometimes it's said like this, the kingdom is already, but not yet. So it's already here in one manifestation, but it's not fully here because we know from the book of Revelation chapter 11 that there comes a point in history when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And that is, of course, what we are all waiting for. Now, over in uh, chapter 19, verse 5, so Pilate, as he's going back and forth with them, and, and we see that Pilate, as, as we saw in the story, Pilate is conflicted because, as we've already seen, he doesn't want to do these guys any favors. He, he can't stand these guys. But they're, they're kind of putting him in a tough place because they're, they're basically saying, hey, unless you do what we want you to do, you're not a friend of Caesar. And the last thing Pilate wants to do is not be a friend of Caesar. He doesn't want to fall out with Caesar. So he takes Jesus, as we read here in chapter 19, he took Jesus and he had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe. And went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And so Pilate then came out to them again. And he said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And verse 5, When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man, or, or behold the man. Now, people wonder, what, what was Pilate trying to do here? Some think Pilate was trying to elicit some compassion. Look, look at this poor man here. Look at, look at what, you know, he's been beaten. He's crowned with these thorns. He's been mocked, all of this. You know, can you have a little bit of compassion? It, it, can this be enough? Some people think that Pilate is saying that. Other people think that Pilate is, by bringing Jesus out in this, um, you know, dressed as a king by the Romans, that he's making a mockery of their accusation against Jesus. <laughs> this is your king? You're trying to tell me that this 
guy right here is raising an insurrection against Rome, that I should be concerned about this person, that he might uh, in some way, shape, or form uh, rise up against Caesar. And so in that sense, Pilate is just dismissing this as absurd. We don't know exactly what Pilate was thinking. But they did have him a bit over a barrel. And we see in verse 12 of chapter 19, Pilate was trying to set Jesus free. He's trying to set Jesus free because he knows that this is, this is just politics. This is the, these guys are envious of Jesus. He, he knew that. Again, he had no sympathy for them whatsoever. So he's trying to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders keep shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So this is where they've got Pilate. Pilate, unfortunately, like many people, he is more concerned about maintaining his position and he's more concerned about the favor of Caesar than he is about his standing before God. And so he, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat in the place known as the stone pavement, and there he passed the sentence. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. This is, this statement right here, and I won't go into any detail on this. I'm just going to make this statement. This is the explanation for the history of the Jews after this point to this day. They rejected God as their king. And I mean, that was what Judaism was, basically. Judaism was Yahweh is our king. And here are the representatives of the Jewish nation saying, we have no king but Caesar. And the rest of history has been these people, having rejected the reign of their God over them, then have been turned over to the various Caesars in the various places that they've gone, and it has never, ever, ever gone well for them throughout all of history. The Jewish people are the most persecuted people in history. And this is the reason because they rejected their king and they embraced Caesar as king. Now, that's just what I wanted to kind of, you know, tie, tie the whole story together. But I want to come back to verse 37. And I want us to focus here for just the last portion of our time here. I want us to focus on Verse 37, so Jesus answered Pilate. Pilate says, you are a king then? Jesus answered, 
you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus says that he has come into the world. Now, notice, Jesus says two things. He says, for this reason, I was born, the incarnation, and I have come into the world. There's, there's a little bit of a hint there that Jesus came from somewhere else into the world. Nobody else comes from somewhere else into the world. We all just <laughs> come into the world. We don't have a pre-existence, right? None of us pre-existed unless you've imbibed some Mormon doctrine, because <laughs> that's what Mormons teach, that we did all pre-exist as souls. But that's not the biblical teaching. Uh, but Jesus did, he pre-existed. And so he came into the world. As Cheryl reminded us in, in her prayer, the king, he stepped down from his throne. And that's what Jesus is just inferring a bit here. For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. To testify to the truth. And then Pilate, you know, cynically says, what is truth? So when Jesus says, I, I came to testify to the truth, what what? does Jesus mean by that? Well, I think we have to understand it, that he has come to testify to a, a very specific truth. Now, he's not come to testify about um, mathematics or logic or even philosophy, which those are all fine, and, and obviously there are truths to be understood through those lenses. But Jesus is not talking about truth in a general sense here. He's talking about truth very specifically. He's talking about the truth of who God is and of who humanity is. This is the truth that Jesus came to testify to. He came basically to tell us and show us, number one, what human beings were intended to be, and number two, who God truly is, and what God is like. Now, what God is like is even more specific, because who God truly is, the Jews, of course, believed that Yahweh was God, but they didn't understand Yahweh. They had completely misinterpreted him, and especially the leaders at the time. So we're going to look at these two things. Jesus showed us the truth about what and who we are supposed to be. You know, Paul says this really fascinating thing in one little verse in 1 Corinthians 15.47. He refers to Jesus as the second man. Now, it's funny because um, in that same passage, he refers to Jesus as the last Adam, and he's comparing and contrasting Jesus with Adam. As in Adam, all people die, so in Christ, everyone will be made alive. But I find a lot of times, um, 
even, even sometimes preachers or commentators, they, they will refer to Jesus as the second Adam. He's not the second Adam. It doesn't say that. It says he's the second man. What does that mean? Well, what that actually means is that there have only been tr- two, and Adam and Eve are, I'm looking at them as one, there have only been two true humans in the history of the world. Humans in the sense of what God intended when he made them. The first was Adam, and the second was Jesus. So all other human beings, all of us, because of our sinful condition, are something other and less than what God intended us to be. That's the problem with the world. That's the problem with humanity. We are not what we were created to be. We have become sinners and we're inclined towards sin. We're inclined toward the way things are not supposed to be. But Jesus is the one who is the second man. He is the sinless man. And he is the one who shows us through his life what humanity was created for. And very simply, humanity was created to know God personally, intimately, and to live in his love and to love each other. That's the... the In a nutshell, that's the purpose of humanity. That is a purpose for which we were created, to know God. All the other pursuits, all the other things that we do, whatever they might be, some good, some not good, whatever, they're all secondary. The first and foremost thing for which we exist is to know God and to live in his love, to know him intimately, personally. So Jesus shows us that. That's how Jesus lived his life. He, he lived his life in communion with his father and in love with his father, doing the will of his father, not doing his own will, but doing the will of him who sent me. And then, of course, Jesus loved his neighbor. Jesus showed us how we are to love one another. He showed us how we are to love our neighbors, which sometimes translates even to strangers and sometimes translates even to enemies. So Jesus showed us all that. So Jesus showed us the truth about who human beings are to be That's the first thing. But the second thing is that Jesus showed us the truth about God. Jesus showed us the truth. So like I said, the Jews knew, I mean, they have this long history. They go back to Abraham, their their patriarch. And they know that God called Abraham and he set him apart. And then Abraham, uh, that God promised that through Abraham and his seed, all the nations of the world, world would be blessed. And then Abraham's son, Isaac, came. And then Isaac's son, 
uh, Jacob or Israel came and then the tribes of Israel and all the great and wonderful stories of the work of God among these people. So point is they knew that Yahweh was their God, but the reality is they didn't know what Yahweh was really like. They missed the, the most important features of who Yahweh was. And so Jesus comes and he is the one to bring Yahweh out into the open. Remember what John says in chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is also himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he has brought him out into the open. So that's what Jesus did. In the Old Testament, the most repeated passage in the Old Testament, believe it or not, is from Exodus chapter 34. It's the description that God gives of himself. That is the most repeated passage in the Old Testament. You find it over and over, either stated exactly or partially or alluded to. And I can't remember the number of times and just Last week, I sat down and I went through every one of them and marked them, and now I forget how many there were. But there, there's a lot of them. Take my word for it. But the most repeated. So Jesus comes to reveal. And, and Hebrews tells us this. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God's person. He's the exact representation. Paul tells us in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. So you want to see God? You want to know what God is like? People wonder, well, you know, if there is a God, what's he like? Look at Jesus. He's the exact representation. He is the image of the invisible God. And what is the thing that that God, as he reveals himself in Exodus 34 and repeats over and over again, and what do we see in the life of Jesus, dominantly in his life? We see through Jesus that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and full of compassion. That's God's self-revelation. That's what we see in the incarnation. Jesus comes and he completely blows everybody's minds because he is merciful and gracious. He blows some people's minds completely like they can't handle it. No way. There can't be that much graciousness. There can't be that much mercy. We won't accept that. I mean, Jesus was so radical. He was so radical. I wish I could... Um, Maybe I'll do it next service. This past week, Cheryl, in her morning devotion, you know, she, she wrote out this thing. It was kind of like, you know, would Jesus be welcome at your church? And then she talked about Jesus. And um, just, just how radical he was. And, you know, so she's reading this thing to me, and I'm like, where did you get that? And she said, oh, you know, I'm just writing it. And she does stuff like that sometimes. And I said, give me that thing. I want to post that. Because it's amazing, but it's, a, it's basically a statement of the radicalness of the mercy and grace 
and compassion of Jesus. And this blows everybody's mind. I mean, for some people, for the, for the broken and for the, the sinful and for the people who feel like and, and are being told, basically, God hates you and there is no future for you except the flames, uh, this is the greatest news ever. This is the greatest revelation of all time. For the self-righteous, they hate this. No way. This is crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm righteous. And now we're good. We, we don't even need that kind of mercy because we're, we're good ourselves. So that's what Jesus does. He reveals that God is merciful and gracious. He also reveals to us that God is faithful. The God of the Bible is a faithful God. And Jesus is showing by his own life the faithfulness of God because Jesus is coming in fulfillment of the promises God has made. And I've already mentioned one. In you, Abraham, and in your seed, singular, all the people of the earth will be blessed. The blessing for all humanity is coming through your seed, Abraham, through your singular seed. And that seed was Christ, Paul tells us. And so Jesus shows that God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He promised that even though sin entered the world, even though man sided with the devil against God, that God would make a way back. And Jesus is that way back. And so his very presence is showing us the truth that God is faithful. But this whole scene, this whole thing that is leading up to that climactic moment of the crucifixion is also showing us something about God. It's showing us that God is just. Why did Jesus die? Well, there are a number of reasons, but one of the reasons that's often overlooked is Jesus died because of God's justice. You see, because God is just, sin must be punished. God cannot, because of who he is, he cannot let sin go unpunished. He must punish sin. And so in Jesus and in what's happening here in this, um, this beating, this crowning, this flogging, this mocking, all of these things that are happening, you know what's happening here? Jesus is actually, he is bearing the punishment for sin. We, human beings, we have committed high crimes against the Most High and the penalty for our crimes must be paid. And that's the substitutionary atonement that Jesus provides for us, which Isaiah 53 spelled out in advance that this is what indeed would be taking place. He was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our sins. 
All we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Remember, Pilate said, aren't you speaking to me? Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or release you? Pilate was pressing Jesus. Jesus didn't say a word. Because Isaiah had prophesied, he would be silent like a lamb before the shears. And so we see in Jesus, we see that God is just. And every injustice must be paid for. Every injustice we've committed, every injustice that others have committed against us, all of the injustices, which there are billions upon billions that have been committed all throughout history. These are sins quite often against our fellow men and women, but they are ultimately sins against God who created us and who gave these laws. And so Jesus shows us that God is just, but finally... Jesus shows us that God is love. And the depth of his love is seen in Jesus in his suffering for us. This is where the deep, deep love of God is displayed. Because what Jesus is doing is he's taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. This is, this is the great act of love, that God is making Jesus, who knew no sin, to become the sin offering for us so that we could in turn become the righteousness that God requires in him. And so in this suffering that Jesus is enduring that will climax with those final words, it is finished, I, into your hands I commit my spirit, all of this is a display of the love of God. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, isn't it? He says that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the demonstration of God's love. How do we know God loves us? How does anybody know that there really is a God of love? God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ, his beloved son, his one and only son, his unique son, the one who is uh, one with the father, he died for us. And as Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that's what he did. He laid down his life for us. So when Jesus says that he came to testify to the truth, he's talking specifically about this truth of who God is, of who we are intended to be, of who we have become, and of what God has done to fix the problem. And what God has done is he has 
condescended. He has stepped down from his throne to die for his subjects. What king dies for their subjects? That's how much he loves us. And so that's the truth. And Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who is of the truth, everyone who's interested in truth. You know, there's a lot of truth seekers supposedly out there. The problem is, as somebody pointed out once, most people say they're seeking truth, but they really hope to never find it. They just like, they like the journey. If you're really seeking truth, this is, this is it. This is where you'll find it. And if you're really seeking truth, you'll listen to it and heed it. Because Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth truly listens to my voice. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have brought to us the truth about God. And, Lord, ultimately that you are the God who is merciful and gracious, the God who is full of compassion. And Lord, today as we have this opportunity to just think on these things and, and receive these things and have them assimilated into our very being through the symbols of your love, the bread and the cup. We pray that you would, Lord, just reaffirm us, reestablish us in your love today, in your truth. Jesus, we thank you, and we acknowledge that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.